Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, everybody, we're back. Uh, This is Ben, and I'm here with Christopher Hurtado today. Welcome, Christopher. Hi, Ben. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I was sick last week. I got pretty knocked out, COVID negative, but uh, I'm I'm feeling better today. Uh, Shiloh's busy with some academic stuff, so he asked Christopher to step in for him today. We are discussing sections 109 and 110. These basically have all to do with the Kirtland Temple. So we've got the dedicatory prayer, and then we've got the section that discusses the appearance of, of Christ and Moses, Elias, and Elijah. So uh, we're going to have a, a good discussion here about this prayer and then, and then get into those appearances here. It's good to have Christopher here to discuss this with us. Christopher is over on our uh, sister podcast, the uh, Contemplation Latter-day Contemplation podcast that he does with Riley Risto. You guys put one out uh, every week or two? How, about how often are you guys putting out a podcast? Every week, usually Every on week. Thursdays, sometimes on Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays, <laughs> usually Thursdays. Um, starting here with section 109, the section heading is pretty short for this. It, it designates this section as a prayer. This is the dedicatory prayer given for the Kirtland Temple. Um, every temple since has sort of followed this type of pattern with the person doing the dedication as giving a prayer of, of dedicating the temple to the Lord. So Joseph Smith, as he's, he's doing this section, is kind of laying a pattern out. He says that he was given this section by revelation, this prayer. And there's a lot that we can pull out of not just the in particular verses, but just the overall flow and feel of this section that I, I the, the more that I thought about it, the, the more it started coming out of, of the pages, so to speak. And this, and this is kind of how it always goes with stuff. I started, my ideas sort of formed around the concept that the temple as a structure is this physical manifestation of of what the church as a people, as a community is, um, maybe destined not the right word, invited to become. A lot of the things that we do with the temple, the way we treat the temple, this dedicatory prayer for the temple the way the Lord talks about the temple are all symbolic in, in his invitation to us to become a people where he can manifest himself. Just like we posit the temple as a building where God can manifest himself. God is supposed to manifest himself in us as his people as a whole and also as individuals. As we discuss this, you know, that's kind of going to be a theme that we bring up in terms of what is it, what is the purpose of the temple and um, what do the early saints view it as? 
and how did their understanding sort of evolve and grow from this point? Because the Kirtland Temple is this very basic building. It doesn't really resemble the temples that we build now. One of the reasons that's that's given for that, and, and I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but one of the reasons that is given for that is that Kirtland Temple was kind of like the proto-temple, and it was where things were supposed to start, and the Lord was going to reveal stuff there. And then as our understanding grew, we were going to add more and more and more and make the the temple more of what it is now. I think that's one explanation. I'm sure there's a lot more to it why why subsequent temples, you know, have been different. Obviously, at this point, we don't quite have the concept of the full endowment at this point in the Doctrine and Covenants, but there's no real idea of what this endowment actually is. Again, just use the word, not any fleshing out of what the actual concept is. The words um, that, the word that's new here, Ben, is exalted. First time that it's used. That takes a while to develop what that really means as well, right? You know, it, it it gets presented and then as this new word, and then there's sort of this discussion around it, and then follow the revelations that sort of flesh out this concept of what really, you know, this exalted means. I'm going to go to verse 5 in section 109. As Joseph Smith starts out with this prayer, he sort of cites all of the the revelations that have been given um, that have directed them to build the temple. So he's sort of, you know, establishing the uh, the basis for why they built the temple in the first place. Um, of course, the Lord knows all of this, right? You know, there's nothing that Joseph Smith says that the Lord doesn't already know. So this brings up the question that we're going to discuss of what is the purpose of prayer? If the Lord knows everything, we're not telling him anything he doesn't already know, what is the purpose of prayer? And I think we're going to discover that one of the main purposes is because we don't really know. And the prayer is the process by which we arrive at that knowledge. Or at which we discover a knowledge maybe that we had was encumbered by other things that weren't what the Lord had for us. Here we have verse 5. And Joseph Smith says, For thou knowest that we have done this work through great tribulation, and out of our poverty we have given of our substance to build a house to thy name, that the Son of Man might have a place to manifest himself to his people. Well, why is it that God needs us to build a house for him to come to. You know, Joseph Smith's already seen him before this time. He went into a grove of trees and saw him, right? So like, why is it that there has to be this house for it? One and, that we can't it, afford to, or that we can hardly yeah, that we afford can to build when he came, when he first came into a, a manger. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So if he's going to manifest himself to us, he can do it any way he wants, right? Why is it that there's this, this temple that has to happen for this to be the case? I think it goes back to this concept that obviously the temple isn't for the Lord himself. The temple is for us to manifest what we are aspiring to as a people and also as individuals. It's really interesting to me, uh, sort of paradoxically, to have the temple be this place 
where we can go to learn, like this quote-unquote special place, where we can go to learn that the temple isn't necessarily special. (laughs) And I mean that in the sense that um, it's a way to teach us that the revelation and the understanding or the closeness or the manifestations that we might feel are particular to that place don't have to be particular to that place, right? It's simply a tool for training us up in that realization of what we really can experience at any place and any time. I see here in verse five that there's some some interesting little little nuggets here. These concepts of great tribulation and out of our poverty, we have given to the substance to build the house that the son of man might have a place to manifest himself unto his people. So um, there's, there's some beatitude stuff here, right? You know, we have this, we have this actual physical poverty, the people, you know, financially, they're actually poor, but, but then we have this poor in spirit. That's the beginning of how beginning of the beatitudes entering in to realizing the kingdom of God. And so again, the temple being this way by which we physically manifest our intentionality so that we come to a spiritual realization of reality. Yeah, it's interesting to to think that we're supposed to build a temple out of our poverty and it's supposed to be really fancy, right? It's this is the house of God. We think of the temple as God's hotel on earth. It's the place for God to uh, stay when he comes to earth. We have to make this place where he can feel welcome to stay. When God can manifest himself, as we said, in a manger or in the woods, what, what is this really about? And it has to be about us. It has to be about the sacrifice that we make to purify ourselves to receive God in the sense of preparing ourselves to be in the presence of God. Right. Anytime we, especially in this section, when it's talking about the physical building, if we put ourselves in that place, verse 12, that thy glory may rest down upon thy people and upon this thy house, which we now dedicate to thee, that it may be sanctified and consecrated to be holy, and that thy holy presence may be continually in this house. We have this verse from the New Testament that tells us that your body is a temple where the you is often interpreted as singular, you know, your body is a temple and therefore take care of your body and keep it pure. And that's great. Verse reads in the plural you, right? Your body means the body of Christ is the, the gathering, the ecclesia, the church. And it re- this whole approach reminds me of Rob Bell's book, God Wants to Save Christians. I love this book and it's got a great title too. And it shows, you know, here God takes the Israelites out of slavery and he's talking to Moses. And meanwhile, the people are building this calf, which isn't completely unrelated to their idea of who who God is in a way that I won't go into. I don't even understand. But it's not this random thing that they chose a calf, right? So they're doing this thing where they're really trying to to find a body for God, to, to put God in. And God's looking for a body, too. He, he gets it. They're kind of on the same page and kind of not at the same time, right? Because God <laughs> wants to inhabit his people. He wants that when people look at the Israelites and, and today when they look at Christians, that they'll, that they'll see him. 
And so it becomes a question of, are we taking upon ourselves the name of Christ in vain? Another one where we read, uh, take upon, uh, what is it? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Really is, thou shalt not take, take upon thyself the name of the Lord thy God right. in vain, is, is how the Hebrew reads. And so it's, are we embodying as a people, as God's people, whether it would be the Israelites in, in, in the, in ancient times in the ancient Near East or, or us today as Christians, are we embodying, are we welcoming God into our own lives and into our own, into the, the, well, that we call it the body of Christ, right? The, the church is the body of Christ. Yeah. I mean, I, I like that concept that you brought up of, of that take the name means, you know, we might throw in that preposition upon because if that concept, if that verse meant simply to speak, then it would say thou shalt not speak the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's not that it's not that, but the, the more, the deeper, more fundamental meaning is that we're talking about his name upon us, taking his name upon us. Don't do that in vain. So take versus speak um, in that context. So that, that, that is interesting. You know, we go over here to verse 13, and this kind of furthers the, the idea that you were talking about. And that all people who shall enter upon the threshold of the Lord's house may feel thy power and feel constrained to acknowledge that thou hast sanctified it and that it is thy house, a place of thy holiness. Well, if you replace all of those houses or places or its with you, right? What is the Lord asking, inviting you to be, right? That's what he's inviting you to be. That when people meet you, what does Alma say? They see his image in your countenance. Exactly. And that you come to know yourself too for who you are, that you understand your relationship to deity and and that you that you are gods that that ye are gods as as psalms 82 was quoted by jesus himself when he was accused of blasphemy for saying he's the son of god yeah yeah as this section moves on and this prayer there's a lot of a lot of ups and downs in this joseph smith starts to recount the persecutions they've had the difficulties the people have had he he starts to talk about the broader mission of the church in the world. Um, he talks about the fulfillment of prophecy. There's a lot of this back and forth and things that when I was reading through it felt somewhat contradictory to me. And I'll, I'll give a couple examples. They could be resolved in multiple ways, but I think the contradiction actually helps us understand this section more so. I'm going to start with verse 31. It says, For thou knowest, O Lord, that thy servants have been innocent before thee in bearing record of thy name, for which they have suffered these things. Therefore we plead before thee for a full and complete deliverance from under this yoke. Break it off, O Lord. Break it off from the necks of thy servants by thy power, that we may rise up in the midst of this generation and do thy work. O Jehovah, have mercy upon this people, and as all men sin, forgive the transgressions of thy people, and let them be blotted out forever. There's a bit of a contradiction happening here in these verses. Um, there's a lot more going on too, but but what I'm going to point out with verse 31, he, Joseph Smith talks first about the people being innocent, and then by the time he gets to verse 34, he talks about how 
all men sin and, and he asks for forgiveness of their transgressions. And so you wonder kind of what's going on. Okay, are the people innocent or are they sinful? Which is it here? This brought up this idea about really what prayer is. And again, as we were talking about previously or at the beginning of the podcast and in, in the intro, the purpose of prayer isn't to tell the Lord something he doesn't know. The purpose of prayer is for us to discover the Lord's will for us so that we can align our will with his. Right. And that process is not simple. It can be messy. And it often includes contradictions because the way that we that we overcome our um our wrong ideas about who we are and who God is is often a a process of us stating them and realizing as we're as we're humble accepting the revelation that's not quite right this is you know more more accurate and so i see this kind of happening yeah when we're not uh, stating these ideas then there are assumptions that we're holding unexamined and mm-hmm. so when we when we pray them out loud then that gives us ch- gives us a chance to externalize them and to be able to look at them and to be able to see them and to, to be able to examine our suppositions, right? Like this idea of, uh, in this prayer of, we're innocent. And then you think, wait a minute, we need to be praying for forgiveness. <laughs> we're not, yeah. There's some sense in which we're not innocent. Even if we're innocent of X, Y, and Z, there's still A, B, C, and one, two, three. Yeah. Um, and so we talked about prayer in, in, in many ways. Enos talks about it as, as a wrestle. Jacob talks about it as a struggle. Um, Alma, I think, talks about it, it as one or the other. I remember it's a wrestle or a struggle, but he, he talks about, you know, struggling in the spirit. And I see this happening, right? Well, what, what, why are you struggling, right? Why are you struggling in the spirit? Well, because you are trying to figure out what ideas you have aren't aren't real and you're doing that through a prayer process you 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 speak them and you're open to the lord correcting you in a sense right and and when there's that humility you know that's the process of prayer coming to the lord in humility speaking those things knowing maybe that they're not correct even to begin with but being able to speak them so that you can examine them and the lord can reveal to you something that is that is better. And I really, it's fascinating to me to see this progression from verse 31 to 34. Joseph Smith going from telling the Lord they're innocent to acknowledging that they're not. <laughs> and this is a beautiful pattern for the saints to witness a prophet speaking to the Lord and realizing that prayer can, can sometimes be messy like this, right? That it's a process by which we, we overcome these false ideas about ourselves and God and others, as we're going to see here in a bit, and, and come into a better realization. Yeah, and you may be struggling. You know, you can think of it in terms of struggling with God because he, he has a way of seeing things and we have a way of seeing things and we're trying to see things the way they are and we trust that he 
does see things the way they are. So we're trying to see them his way. So another way of thinking about it is maybe to say that instead of saying we're struggling with God, that we're struggling with ourselves in relationship with God. Yes. And it can be that as well. Yeah. One of the others we used that was a little, little nicer in this process would be like a dance, right? <laughs> and uh, maybe, maybe I've said some prayers that were more like a dance, and I've probably said some prayers that were m- much more like a struggle or a wrestle or an outright, you know, boxing match or something. <laughs> yeah, it's been said, and I think it was on etymological grounds, and I can't remember the details, but it has been said by, for example, Father Richard Rohr that that the trinity itself is a dance it's a divine dance and so if we're supposed to enter into the relationship with god that jesus has with god and become one with him that's a dance we have to learn to do right right the other instance in here that i see a a bit of a contradiction that's that seems to be resolved or at least addressed in his prayer is when Joseph Smith starts going into some of the persecutions that that the saints have experienced, kind of in a general way. But he says, um, <clears throat> uh, over in uh, verse forty-two, but deliver thou, O Jehovah, we beseech thee, thy servants from their hands, and cleanse them from their blood. O Lord, we delight not in the destruction of our fellow men; their souls are precious before thee. But thy word must be fulfilled. Help thy servants to say, with thy grace assisting them, thy will be done, O Lord, and not ours. We know that thou hast spoken by the mouth of thy prophets terrible things concerning the wicked in the last days, that thou wilt pour out thy judgments without measure. Therefore, O Lord, deliver thy people from the calamity of the wicked, enable thy servants to seal up the law and bind up the testimony that they may be prepared against the day of burning. So sort of entreat the Lord to do justice upon their enemies. And there's multiple times in here where he, he kind of refers back to this. Um, and, and then you see this, this progression as he, as he keeps going, in, going through it. And we get to verse 50. And he says this, Have mercy, O Lord, upon the wicked mob who have driven thy people, that they may cease to spoil, that they may repent of their sins. If repentance is to be found. Again, this kind of goes along with this struggle that he's having. He's voicing all of these, these traumas and um, horrors that the people have experienced, the things that they're upset about, the wrongs they feel have been committed against them. And <clears throat> he's voicing all of this in this prayer. You know, this basically all the saints have have gathered or this is written down for them to read later. So this is something that basically every single person will have heard or read at some point. Yeah. And you pointed out something in our pre-show discussion that I think is important to bring up here. And that is that there's a a speaking of the people's trauma in the prophet's prayer. And that's important too. And so there's, this is a healing process. We talk about the healing power of prayer. We see that power manifest in this prayer in this context. Right. Yeah. The, the very important function of this prayer is this collective voice voicing of the trauma as, so that the people know, you know, maybe they've prayed on their own, but then they also see the prophet who is this person that's been giving them revelation, approaching the Lord with this trauma. Collective type of pronouncement. 
And you can really see the struggle because, and this one, with this second example you've pulled out, you can really see the back and forth, not just earlier this, later that. It's back right. and forth. It's we yeah. really do, we really have experienced this trauma and yet, and we really do want justice and yet forgive them. And we know it's supposed to be like this, but we feel like that, or it's supposed to be like that, but we feel like this. And it's just back and forth and you can see him struggling with it. And it's so important that the process of the prayer itself, the, the process of prayer is healing. It is powerful. It is powerful. And this is, this is a power. This, this prayer teaches us much the same way that the Lord's prayer teaches us. This prayer teaches us how to pray. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it teaches us. It could be prescriptive in a way, but I think it's often, I think I look at it as, as descriptive, right? Is that like, I read through this and I think, oh, you know, okay, so it's okay if I pray like this. It's okay if I'm all over the place when I pray, where, you know, I'm, I don't like sit down in the beginning of my prayer. I'm a hundred percent, you know, in tune with the Lord uh, from the beginning to end. That's not how prayer works, right? You know, you're going to be up and down all over in your prayer with the way that your will is aligned with the Lord. A much shorter and more poetic version of something like this example of this would be like Nephi's Psalm. You know, he kind of goes up and down in the way that he prays, right? Oh, you know, I, I know the Lord is blessing with all these things, but then just like, I'm a terrible person and I'm angry all the time. Oh, but I know the Lord's merciful and he'll bless these, but, and I have these enemies. And, and so there's this back and forth. And there's yeah. a little bit of that here, right? And I like the rawness of this in that sense. I mean, I know there's a lot of flowery language and, and stuff like that just because it's the mode of prayer. But there is some rawness here to just saying, hey, you know, this is what we're feeling. And um, we're, we're trying to, to find a way out of it. And, and it kind of giving that description of how a prayer would go. It's almost like it's giving us permission to be messy in our prayers, you know? Yeah, and there's something else going on here too, Ben, is that this is a revealed prayer, it's said. Mm -hmm. And and we know that from Joseph Smith's own statement. We also know from Oliver Cowdery's statement that the two of them got together the day before to talk about and to, to plan yeah. this. To, they, they probably had, you know, talked about what he was going to pray about, maybe even wrote something out. I don't know. Maybe just talked about the things that would be covered in the prayer. And it covers a lot of ground, right? But at the same time, it's something that's happening in real time. And it's interesting how we take the, you know, prayers like this as prescriptive. We, we do tend to pray for all. I mean, it's hard not to pray for all these things because it is all the things. It just seems like all the things are included in this prayer, right? So what else could you pray about in, in one sense, right? But at the same time, you know, same with the Lord's prayer, which is a lot shorter. We, we struggle even in, in, in the question of, do we take this as, do we repeat this? Is this a prescription? Do we follow the model? And the answer is yes. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, every prayer is going to be different. And but I think the that that core of it that seems to always ring true to me is is that that struggle or that back and forth. The Bible dictionary talks about this pretty well when, when it talks about prayer. You know, it's it's the process by which the will of the child is brought in line with the will of the father. Right. And so it, it's work, right? It talks about prayer as work. 
it's it's a process we go through where we're we're changing our hearts, we're repenting. It's that repentance process, and so it's just sort of a, a mode by which that that happens. This conversation that goes think, on, and so I I really like how this is kind of drawn out with that. Yeah, I think that you point out something here that is that if if this is if this is that what you're saying it is, and I think it is, that means we vain repetitions won't do. Mm-hmm. You're not really doing any work in in you know in vain repetition. So you have to really go into this work and you have to really do the dance, wrestle the wrestle, you know, uh, struggle through the struggle. You've got to do the work. Yeah. And so it just means, and, and if you don't know, how would you know how to get there? You don't, that's the thing. You go into it and you say, I'm innocent. And then you, you you hear yourself say that and you feel the spirit and you say, okay, I'm not innocent. <laughs> or maybe, maybe I was in one sense, but there's another sense in which I need to ask for forgiveness. And maybe they're both true at the same time. The truth encompasses all things. So if I'm just focused on where I'm innocent and I'm missing where I'm not, then that's an alignment with reality that's happening in real time and in, in that prayer process. You know, as as he progresses more in the prayer, he gets into a discussion of, um, you know, he talks about that the house of David or the sons of Jacob. He seems to be referring to the Jews here. And it says some interesting things that um, I'm not sure I have, if there's historical context for them or not. Maybe this, uh, but, but so 65 and 66, he says, and caused that the remnants of Jacob, who have been cursed and smitten because of their transgression, and it's not clear what he means by their transgression. I know that there's a this the popular um, sort of Protestant idea at the time was that the Jews were to blame for the crucifixion of Christ, right? And so I'm not sure how much of that is in the culture at this point or in sort of the collective consciousness of, of American Christianity at this point. Um, again, I'd, I'd, I'd like to see if there's some commentary on that concept, because I think just the fact that he says they're smitten because of their transgression, what does he mean? And then he says, be converted from their wild and savage condition to the fullness of the everlasting gospel. And I don't know what he's referencing there either, because again, he's talking about the Jews are, is is there a cultural perception at this time in 1836 of the Jews as a wild and savage people, or is he maybe talking about the Lamanites? It sounds like the Lamanites to me. I don't really know the context for this either. I know that this prayer has roots in section 88. Yeah, right? he's praying for a lot of the things he's taught what to pray for in section 88. It has roots in 76, 84, 88, 93, and it's even pointing forward to, you know, we haven't gotten there yet, but 109 and 132. But as far as Old Testament roots, I'm not sure. I, I, I'm, I think I'm going to tend to, to go in the direction, you know, he's not just, I mean, he says the children of Judah here, but I know that at least at this point, um, the way the Book of Mormon talks about, the Lamanites, they're considered Jews in one sense. So, the, Are you thinking of the stick of Judah and the stick of Joseph? Well, not necessarily that. Um, I'm thinking about you know how Nephi talks about himself as a Jew. Well, it's funny because Nephi often talks about the Jews as yes. though he weren't a Jew. 
Right. <laughs> it's it's a very it's a very uh confusing way to to present that. And that's why I wonder here, you know, what what is their concept of of this at the time? And and I I think the at least what he's referring to here must be the what they would term Lamanites, right? Um and and that would certainly fit with what my understanding is of, of their cultural perception of the Native Americans at the time. Yeah, um, I'd say that's certainly a good that, that's probably what guess. he's talking about here. You know, also because that their express purpose just a few years previous was to go to Jackson County and the border of Missouri so that they could preach to the Lamanites, right? And that was kind of the whole deal here. So I think that that might be what they're talking about here. Also because verse 66 actually referent actually kind of alludes to Mormon chapter 7 where Moroni calls out the Lamanites and says almost this exact same thing. He says, "You need to lay down your weapons of war, your weapons of rebellion and take them no more." He says. And so verse 66 kind of alludes to that. He says that they may lay down their weapons of bloodshed and cease their rebellions. And so that is kind of a fascinating, if not um, somewhat cringeworthy, <laughs> um, commentary on on the relationship between you know early Americans at this time and and Native Americans, and then and then how this uh, these early members of the church viewed them. They viewed them sort of with that cultural lens that you know the. The English settlers brought in of the Native Americans, but they also viewed them as the chosen people of the Lord. And so there was this tension between these these two ideas of who these people were and, and what they meant to the Lord. It's it, it's kind of interesting. And this is for Latter-day Saints, right? We're talking right. about the, exactly. the Latter-day Saint perspective. Huh? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So um, over to verse 73. Um, and I think this is another thing where we can kind of put in uh, ourselves or, or community of the church. It says that thy church may come forth out of the wilderness of darkness and shine forth fair as the moon, clear as the sun and terrible as an army with banners. Again, you know, this physical manifestation, we're, we're building this temple as a physical manifestation of who we're to become as a people. And this temple is this beacon of light. This is supposed to be sort of our city on a hill, like our literal city on a hill, right? So that people will then see, well, they will see us as the people who are the city on a hill type. Of Makes thing. me think of coming around the Beltway in DC yeah. and seeing the temple, <laughs> yeah, where they, they had to actually ask the church to turn the lights down because <laughs> it really is quite impressive. Right? It looks like it's sitting in the middle of the Beltway the way you yeah. come around the the bend and, and see it. It's interesting, though, there seems to be a category error here. You know, there's one of these is not like the others. So we have shine forth, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners. What do you make of that? Yeah, so the the army rhetoric here, the, the little bit of militancy here is interesting. You know, we, we talked, Chell and I talked two weeks ago, we were talking about Zion's camp and and all of sort of the militaristic rhetoric that's used in in those sections referring to it. There's no specific reference or um, call to, to actual physical arms or violence, but there's a lot of rhetoric surrounding 
you know, that, that uses um, militaristic type rhetoric. And so when you bring up things like an army with banners, you wonder, well, well, first of all, the word terrible, um, I might want to pull that up in a, an 1828 dictionary, but it might, well, we're might talking not about mean something Something different. to be feared. Yeah, something to be something feared. Something that causes terror. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, to throw that in here is is kind of interesting. I'm not sure exactly what to I wonder, make of Ben, it. if we can think of, of the unfolding of the revelations that we have compiled and called the Doctrine and Covenants, right? As something like the prayer, as something as this prayer process, right? So, of course, you know, when, when, the, when Zion's camp is marching, they think that redeeming Zion is something that's going to happen by force of arms. Hmm. Right? I'm, I'm sure a lot of them thought that. And yet that's not what happens. Um, it, whatever, you know, whatever revelation Joseph Smith receives comes, you know, we don't believe that it's dictated. You know, it doesn't come, you know, take this down and, you know, you yeah. get a dictation, yeah. right? So it right. comes through his own filter and his own understanding. And that understanding is going to develop and it's going to much like in prayer, right? Oh, I, this is what I, this is what I think, right? This is what I understand. And then your understanding develops through the process of receiving uh, ongoing revelation. I think mm -hmm. we can see a parallel between that process and the prayer process. Sure. When something he's describing something, he's using the the, the metaphors that that he understands that make sense to his mind the most. Throwing this out here, and, and terrible as an army with banners, you know, I'm I I haven't ever seen that myself, so I'm not really sure what that evokes. But to a people that have seen that, you know, it's it's impressive. Maybe that's the right word. And I don't know that he's seen them either, because it sounds more ancient or medieval than it does early American. <laughs> Romanticizing or, or, the yeah. So yeah. you know, I think a lot. I, I notice a lot of his allusions are biblical. Sure. And, you know, I think we have this idea that Joseph Smith wasn't well read, right? That he didn't love books. And I think this is something that a narrative that his mother promoted. I'm not sure it's true. It <laughs> seems like he really knows his Bible, you know, and maybe yeah. even a lot of other books that, that, that people didn't even think were available that were. That yeah. D. Michael Quinn has done the homework to show us what was actually being sold uh, by peddlers door to door, what was in the libraries. And maybe a lot of this uh, is part of his context, a lot more than we than we realize is part of not only of, of um, his his neighbor's context, right, of, of the the cultural milieu, but of Joseph, uh, Joseph himself. And so he has to be able, be able to overcome those cultural paradigms and those that cultural conditioning and to actually see correctly. Right. This is a repentance process. All, repentance is a way of life. For a prophet, it's surely a way of life. For all of us, it has to be a way of life. It's a way by which we we come to better understand. It's an epistemological uh, unfolding and unveiling. But when we go to, I know we're going to talk about the next section too, right? We talk about the 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 veil being drawn from our eyes or from our understanding. Sorry, not from our eyes, from our understanding, right? Yeah, so it's yeah. not about seeing things uh, and metaphysically, right, to, to have a, a visual manifestation, but to have an understanding open up to us. And that's yeah. an unfolding. That's a gradual process. I see it personally. I see it as a, as a process that has been going on for thousands of years.
from the ancient Israelites thinking that Yahweh is their tribe's war god right. to this, you know, these terrible army and banners rhetoric, right? <laughs> and in one sense, the more things change, the more they stay the same. On the other hand, we've, we've come a long way. And yet we have a long way to go. I'm going to go here to verse 78. Oh, hear, oh, hear, oh, hear us, oh, Lord. Often throughout this section, you, you get these moments where you can kind of feel his pleading, right? And this is another aspect of prayer. This, this yearning, this pleading, it's, a, it's almost like, you know, I want my will. It, it's sort of a moment where we're trying to impose our will on the Lord. And then as, as we approach a moment of humility, we, we, we let that drop and, and see what he has for us. It's very interesting to me to read this language. It kind of evokes for me this, this pleading or maybe a somewhat humble attempt to impose our will on the Lord. Yeah. Here, as, as if the Lord doesn't already know what he's going to tell him right now, right? He has to say it three times. <laughs> well, if he does know the Bible as well as I've suggested he, he might, then he's forgotten the verse that says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> but, uh, but again, this is descriptive. I mean, we all do this, right? I mean, I like, at least I do. You know, when I pray, I'm just like, um, there's always this pleading um, that, that as if we could impose our will on God. And it's just part of the process. It's almost, it's almost like it has to happen in order for us to give that up. You know? It's our understanding. So we, we've talked about prayer as aligning our will with God's, but yeah. that's not the meaning of the word prayer. The word prayer sure. is about pleading. And so sure. apparently there's this understanding among us, uh, humankind, you know, that, <laughs> that this is about pleading to have yeah. our way when really, if we understand it correctly, it's about aligning our will with God's such that it's really his way that prevails. And, and we have to trust, you know, that that's what's going to be best for us. So yeah, he says, Oh, hear, oh, hear, oh, hear us, O Lord, and answer these petitions and accept the dedication, the dedication of this house unto thee, the work of our hands, which we have built unto thy name. And, well, and also this church. Go ahead. Well, and he's looking for power from on high, right? I mean, we yeah. we went to we went to um, you know, back east. Am I did I go the right way? Zion's camp, right? <laughs> we went back to where, where Zion's camp went to redeem um, Zion, right? Independence, Missouri, yes. Well, it was west from Kirtland. Okay, so we went back west. We went west to, to redeem yeah. Zion and yeah. by power. And we thought this was force of arms. And we get there and it's not. And it's go back home to build a temple, to be endowed with power from on high. Which is, as you've pointed out, it's not this what we think of as the endowment. Right, it's not it's not that, but it is the presence of 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 God and the power of the presence of God, and what that yeah. can do for our understanding of, I don't know, did it even? Because the question too is, what is Zion? So if if Zion is going to be redeemed by power, I just talked about the power part of it. It's not force of arms. It's power from on high. It comes in the temple. What is Zion? Is it back in? Is it back west again in Independence, Missouri, or is it 
is that the kingdom of God is within you. Is the new Jerusalem, the, the new city of peace, wherever you are, if you're at peace. And, and that's a peace that comes through Jesus Christ, which is a peace that surpasseth all understanding. It, it doesn't have to be. I think of my friend Sahar Kumsiya's book where she talks about the bombs falling all, all around her. She's from Bethlehem. She's living in Bethlehem. There are, she's living um, with bombs falling and they're in the next town and it's where her family is. And she doesn't know if her family is, if the bombs are falling on her family. And yet she finds peace in Christ, as John likes to say a lot, in Christ, right? She, she finds life in Christ, peace in Christ. Again, a peace that surpasseth all understanding. The yeah. bombs don't stop falling. And yet you're, and you're not in Jerusalem, the one that as a Palestinian is so important to her and to so many of us, you know, whether we're Christian, whether we're Jew, whether we're Muslim, there's this contention over this, this physical place, right? When the new Jerusalem can be wherever we are if, when we find that peace. Well, I think that's an interesting concept to arrive at that, that peace is the power that we're really looking for, right? Yeah. Peace is the power by which we master ourselves, or it's, it's the result of us mastering ourselves. So, you know, it, we kind of come full circle here in these, this last couple verses with this, this concept that we've been talking about with how the, the temple being this manifestation of the the community of the people and their desire to to uh become into communion with god right to to come into his presence and so here of 79 and also this church to put upon it thy name right we talked about taking upon ourselves the name of god or the name of christ not taking it upon ourselves in vain so and also this church to put upon it thy name. So he's asking the Lord to approve, to go ahead and put his name upon the church and help us by the power of thy spirit that we may mingle our voices with those bright shining seraphs around thy throne with acclamation of praise, singing Hosanna to God and the Lamb. And let those thine anointed ones be clothed with salvation and thy saints shout aloud for joy. Amen and amen. So here in 80, uh, you know, we probably talk about this for a while. You know, it's interesting here that he says, and let these thine anointed ones, right? That That's a messianic reference there, right? If you're an anointed one, you're a Messiah. So here, these are people, if they've been anointed, they've they've taken upon themselves the name of Christ. Because Christ is the anointed. Yeah. With so, Christ, so they become the... The children of, of God, right? Yeah. Then we, that dedication happens March 27th. Um, so we have um, seven days later. I guess that dedication is on a Sunday. So the next Sunday, um, April 3rd, we have this uh, next section uh, occurring. And that's Easter Sunday. Yeah. And yeah. and it doesn't have to occur this way. It doesn't because the the Jewish calendar isn't uh, Gregorian. It's all. It also happens to be uh, Passover Seder. It's the first night mm -hmm. of Passover when um, when Elijah is thought to come, you know, to each Jew's home 
and and that's you know the the coming of Elijah is a symbol of the precipitation of the coming of the Messiah, right, right, which as you brought up is is kind of uh, a question here because then the assumption would be that Elijah is coming to prepare the way for the Messiah, except that in this in this section how it's explained that this vision happens, Christ comes first. That's what we're told, right? Christ comes yeah. first, and then yeah. Elijah. And so, I mean, that's how it's laid out here. It's possible right. it it did happen in a different order, and this is just how it's laid out in the section. And the reason I think it's very possible it happened in a different order, not just because you know we we talk about the way that prophecies would be fulfilled, but because when you read through this section, it seems obvious to me that we don't have the full vision account here. <laughs> well, you gave a really good example pre-show. Uh, Moses has one line, right? Yeah, yeah. Moses gets one verse, right? After this vision closed, the heavens were open, again opened to us, and Moses appeared before us and committed unto us the keys of the gathering of Israel from the four parts of the earth and the leading of the ten tribes to the land of the north. And that's it. That's all we get from Moses. And it's like, okay, no. <laughs> he definitely said more stuff. <laughs> right. Well, okay. How about, I don't know about you, but I thought about this in terms of, well, how do they even know it's Moses? Does Do we get... Behold, this is my servant Moses. Hear him, you know, something no, like he's that. He's holding the tablets, haven't you? Or does seen he show up at the tablets or he said, Hi, <laughs> I'm Moses. Glass right. And so obviously we're not getting everything here, right? Sure. And by the way, who knows? Again, the, a veil was parted. They're behind a, a curtain, an actual veil that that keeps I don't know if anybody else is there. This is at the end of the day, right? At the right uh, yeah. after I, the the Sabbath. I, it was never clear to me either, but I always assumed everybody else was gone. At but this it, point. one way or the other, they're behind be a, a veil, a gone. heavy curtain, yeah. and yet what's what's open is not that veil, but the veil of their understanding. And so I don't know how this works. Maybe it's not all there, or maybe when you have a vision of Moses. He doesn't need to wear a name tag and nobody needs yeah. to introduce him. But then why does it's like when you God introduce Jesus and in the first in vision? Dream and you just know that you just know who's who, who right? Yeah. yeah. And yet we have the first vision where God has to say, this is my beloved son. Sure. Hear him. Sure. Sure. Well, that's that's also Joseph telling a narrative. Right? Yes. And so when Joseph is telling a story, one. in order for him to, to tell it to other people, even if even if the way that he experienced it isn't word for word how he explains it, he has to explain it that way in order for you to understand the same experience he had, right? And we know this at least in part from the multiple tellings of the same sure. experience. You know? sure. and, because and when you have an experience, you, you have to put it into words, even though your experience wasn't a verbal experience. Right. right. And especially when it's exp an experience of the divine, you're talking about an unveiling of the mysteries of God. And mystery means, well, it goes back to the Greek musterion, which means to close the mouth. Yeah. Uh, you, this is something that's ineffable. So you're putting right. into words what cannot be put into words. Right. Good luck. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have this, this way of symbolizing the ineffable by the directive to not talk about a certain thing. Right? Right. Not because... Um, and and so the the symbolism there is that there are certain things that you're not you're not capable of talking about, and the way that we symbolize that is by giving an imperative to not do it. Right, both are present at the same time since antiquity. Yeah. Right, 
um, the ineffable can really mean both, right? Either it can't be talked about or you're not supposed to talk about it. Yeah. Because, you know, you're an initiate. When you go to the temple, you're an initiate and you don't talk about your experience uh, to those who are not initiated. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's very likely that um, there's a lot more going on to this vision than we get in these 16 verses here. To, to going back to something that you already brought up a couple times here, Chris, which which is really fascinating and, and probably one of the maybe the most fascinating verse of this of this section is verse number one. And it says, the veil was taken from our minds and the eyes of our understanding were opened. And, you know, we, we talk about a veil, you know, you were just talking about this. We talk about a veil as something that, that blocks our vision, our, our actual physical vision. And um, here it's talking about a veil that is blocking their minds. So this isn't something like you said, metaphysical or even, you know, um, that we would see with our, our, our actual eyes. It's an epistemic change in what our minds are able to perceive about reality. And so the veil was taken from our minds it brings me back to the what you guys said uh, in an earlier episode about taking off sunglasses instead of turning up mm. the lights. The light's already there. God is present. Right. God is omnipresent, right? And yet we're not always aware of, of that presence. And so yeah. it, to remove the veil of our understand from our understanding means to take off those sunglasses so that yeah. we can see that light. It's opened up. And so because of that, it says the eyes of our understanding were opened. So, so it's almost like that you have this, you know, they're saying like there's this other pair of eyes that were closed. The scales and, fall from our yeah, eyes. Yeah. And, you know, this is spoken of uh, multiple times in, in scriptures by different prophets. Um, Enoch talks about how, you know, he washes his eyes and then he can see, well, what can he see? He can see the spirits of men. You know, and and this is these are all the things he see that he couldn't see with his with his natural eyes. Um, Moses says this. You know, I've seen God my eyes, not with my real eyes, not with my natural eyes, but with my spiritual eyes. And and so I can relate to this in many ways because in certain experiences that I've had, there's there's been those moments of of an understanding being opened um, in such a way that. Uh, you know, all of a sudden there was a bunch of things that made sense all at once rather than like a, a struggling academic um, type of, of exercise that I will go through when I'm trying to learn how to do something. There will be those moments that are that are much more open, you know, sort of bursts where you have that eyes of understanding being open. So uh, to me, I can, I can kind of grasp what he what he's talking about here just just on a maybe a, a more finite sense of my own experience. Yeah, a mystical experience is an experience sure. of the divine, which is an experience, uh, at least I'm talking about a, a, an experience of the divine, which is a, a mystical experience, and that is an experience of unity. So already if it's not an experience of duality, which is our everyday experience, right. then it's not discursive. It's not, as you said, from from one thing to another, you know, this, therefore, that. 
And, and so it can really be an, a coming into an awareness of the unity of all existence in one go and for everything to fall into place. And usually it's just a glimpse, right? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, and if we're looking at cases with section 76, with this section where it's more than that, in fact, not only here's another reason to, to believe that this isn't everything. I mean, it's, it seems kind of obvious. I don't think we have to say anything else, but I'll just add that we know from Joseph Smith when it comes to section 76, it's in this, it's in the section itself. As I recall, you and I recorded the podcast on that, that they mostly wrote what they heard, not what they saw. And so what they saw isn't there. Mostly it's what they heard for the most part. And then we know from later on, Joseph Smith, Smith said himself, he said, I could have told you so much more that there was more to tell that he didn't tell us. Yeah. And so I don't see any reason why this would be any different. Yeah, so much more to it um, and was only able to, these are the things he could explain or felt like were needed to be understood at the moment. Yeah, and there's something else to this, Ben, that, that I think bears pointing out too, and that is, so what what is this about? So you ask the Lord to approve and he shows up and he approves. That's important that that happens mm-hmm. and that the people know that. You also have, you know, Moses and Elijah and Elias restoring keys. Now, Joseph Smith has the priesthood, but he doesn't have the authorization, he doesn't have the keys to exercise that priesthood in certain ways. And that includes sending out missionaries. And so I think a clue that we have that this that there's more to this than what we see here is here we're getting what we need to know, in, in a sense, is what I'm saying. Joseph Smith, when he gets this these keys to be able to send out missionaries abroad, he actually goes and gives these calls by whispering in people's ears. Right? He actually tells people very yeah. privately, go and serve this mission over there, right? And so this is about moving the work forward, and we're going to see as much as we need to see, And there, but there's more going on here, and this is just the beginning of an unfolding of, well, I mean, come on, this is, again, this is happening on, on uh, Passover Seder. It's, you know, Elijah has come, he's precipitating the coming of the Messiah. We, in the context of this section, I think we're in this place again where we can say, I'm sure this has come up before on the podcast between you and Shiloh, that this is it, right? This is the end. The Messiah come, is coming quickly, as he always says he is, right? And as I think we've covered, you know, that, that can happen quickly for you, whether it's, whether it's you have that experience and it's, as you described it, Ben, that's just all at once. Or whether um, or whether you meet your maker, as we euphemistically say, because I don't know when I'm going to die. That comes quickly mm-hmm. too, doesn't it? No matter how old you are, it can come quickly. But it's clear that they, that this is that the whole restoration that the that the early church, just as in the the early church when Jesus came, you know, everybody's in the mode of this is it, right? This yeah. is the end. The things are yeah. happening. Things are. And, and all this is, something's going down here, right? And it's yeah. right now. It's right now. <laughs> Very and exciting. it is right now. It's right now for the people who are experiencing it. And it can be right now for us too. We don't right. have to think of this as a one-time only event. Right. In sacred time, as in sacred space, and here we're talking about the sacred space of the temple, anytime you go into sacred space, there's the attendant sacred time. And that's part of the ritual and that's part of the experience of the temple. And so whether we enter into that building, which we call the sacred space, the temple, 
or whether we do as, as you've said, Ben, and we take this temple as a model for who we are as a people, as God's people, and then we enter into a sacred space wherever we stand, right? Wherever we happen to be, wherever we are the pure in heart, then we can also enter into that sacred time in which it is the beginning and it is the end. And it's both. And. Sorry, I thought you were going to say something more there. <laughs> yeah. So this this uh, phrase here, again, that I want to go back to, this veil taken from our minds. I, I've, I brought it up before, but there's this uh, one time when I was teaching seminary that I brought in a bag of just like animal toys and um, passed it around. And, and the students were supposed to stick their hand in and like feel a toy and and see if they could figure out what it was just by feeling it. Right. And so, you know, they, they'd like reach in and they like, okay, I feel some legs. All right. They're four legs. They're kind of skinny. Oh wait, there's, there's this body here. Oh, the neck is really long and this and it's okay, a horse. So it kind of feels, yeah, like a horse or, or something. And, and so Again, you know, it, there's this process you're going through of, of, of the sequential realization of what something might be based on your previous experience, right? And so, and then I said, okay, well, why don't you just grab that and pull it out of the bag, right? So they, they pull this out of the bag and, and you look at it and immediately, oh, it's a giraffe, you know, and there's no, there's no process you go through like for, for tr trying to figure this out, it's just, it's instantly present before you, you know, and it's kind of like that veil, right? It, you, you take it out of the bag. This veil is taken from your minds and there's, everything's there before you. It's no longer this sequential understanding of reality. That's, it's never quite complete. It's there. Going back to the concept you talked about of how like, you know, the Lord is always there. It's just a matter of us taking this this veil off or having the veil taken off, uh, you know, whichever it really is in the circumstances. Um, you know, we go over to Moses and Elias and Elijah and they're coming and they're committing these keys to them. But in one sense, they already had this. You know, these are all powers they already have, but, but Moses and Elias and Elijah are coming to tell them you have it. You have it. Yeah. You, you, Okay, you guys can do it now. This is what you you need to do. You know, you're at, and it, it's kind of that way that the Lord. It, it's that mercy of the Lord that He comes to tell us. Okay, you know, you you can do it now. You you know, you didn't giving us the realization of our own uh, true self, right? Yeah, and there's something you said that made me think. You know, if God wants to show Himself to us, and we've seen examples of this. Nothing can stop us, not even our supposed unworthiness, right? You can think of Paul, you can think of Alma, right? He's going to show up and you're going to see all of him and he's going to manifest himself, right? At the same time, he's always knocking. So I think, you know, both are true, right? We can choose, he can choose to show himself to us. We can choose to see him. He's always knocking. All we have to do is answer, be still and know that he is God. This is why this is why prayer, prayer prayer is a form of stillness. Meditation is a form of stillness that is, you know, in in a, in a David O. McKay quote that we pointed out, it's it's mentioned as you know one of the most powerful ways to access the divine is meditation. 
And yet it's not talked about so much um, outside of that quote that, that we love to, to bring up, you know, because it's there. But it is a form of being still and knowing that he is God. Finding the kingdom of God within you in that stillness. Finding the presence of God in yourself, which is in, which yourself is in the image of God. Right? You are a reflection of the divine. And if you polish that mirror, and that's, again, removing the veil, then it's going to reflect the reality that, again, ye are gods. Yeah. I like here how, and, and it's never been quite obvious to me. I've always kind of asked this question, and, and I've, I've had different answers on it. I want to get maybe your idea here, Chris, on, on if you have any thoughts on this. If Jesus comes first, and again, it's not obvious that he does. It's just the way this section is ordered. If Jesus comes first and Jesus has all the keys, right? <laughs> Why can't Jesus just give them the keys? Why do Moses and Elias and Elijah have to come afterwards? Or maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe they don't have to come. Why do they come afterwards? Why Why wouldn't Jesus just say, okay, um, and you guys can do all of these things now too. Here's the keys. Now, what, what's your answer? <laughs> <laughs> so um, there's there's a few thoughts that I've had on this. And and um, the reason I was curious on your thoughts is because I, I, I'm not sure they're really very good answers. Um, one is one is one of the things that we've talked about before where, you know, the Lord is capable of doing all his own work. He doesn't even need us to do it. Right. But he does invite us to be part of it. And, and, you know, he, he invites his servants to, to go and work in the vineyard with him. And they, and in one of the things it talks about, we have joy with working in the vineyard with him, right? Because yeah, it reminds if it's me. his work and he enjoys it, well, if we're, you know, if we, if he's our true self that we're becoming, then we're going to enjoy doing the same things that he is. So, so he wants us to be part of that. He wants to invite us into that. And yeah, so didn't we have having a Moses that- and Elias and Elijah be part of it makes sense, right? Yeah, didn't we have a prophet that told us that that we should grow a garden and that we involve our children and remember that we're not just growing vegetables, we're growing children? Sure. Well, we're <laughs> God having us work with him in his vineyard is growing us. It's not just sure. grapes that he's growing, he's growing us. That's a good answer, Ben. Sure. So so that's one of the things. Um the other thing is uh from from the perspective of like Joseph and Oliver who are, you know, very much uh steeped in in biblical um, especially Old Testament understanding, and 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 these figures are important and prominent to them. Um, when when Jesus goes on the mount and has the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, you know these are the figures that you know, Moses and Elijah at least are the ones that come. He names Moses, Elias, and Elijah here, which is a whole other can of worms discussion we won't get into because that's not really our purpose. Right. But, um, so it would make sense that they would have some sort of an experience that helped Joseph and Oliver um, accept and realize the importance of the work they were doing, that it was comparable to the dispensation that the Savior had, that these figures from the Old Testament, um, would that they would return and come to give their stamp of approval to this work was, was really important to them understanding the the importance of it, right? And because if Jesus said it, it, it wouldn't be good enough, right? Really yeah, because if Jesus said it, it wouldn't be good <laughs> no, enough. No, I think you know, I get your answer to that. And this is this is my answer, actually. It's it's the same as your second answer, and that is that there's a story 
that for the things to happen, this is what happens. Elijah comes. So, by the way, that's what that's what an ancient prophet understood, whether it was true or not. It's what the yeah. ancient prophet understood yeah. and wrote. And so now we moderns reading that, we're looking for that to happen. And so Jesus says, okay, here we go. Now, that still doesn't explain why the order, why yeah. Elijah, who is supposed <laughs> to precipitate the coming of the Messiah, comes after the Messiah, or why we're told that he does. I don't know. But I just think I just think it helps us. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I just think the whole thing helps us to realize what that maybe we shouldn't get so hung up on on these details. Maybe we shouldn't take things so literally. And by the way, as we've both said, Ben, if we do, God's got our back. He'll make sure all the right people show up. I was going to say in the right order, but then. That's not, it's not clear that that happened. Maybe that's his, his wink in this, right? He's like, okay, okay, here's all the guys you're expecting to see, but not in the order. Wink, wink. I don't know. <laughs> well, I think, you know, he does say, he does say, um, after this, after this, you know, in those verses, verse 11, after this, and then mm-hmm. verse 12, after this, and then 13, after this. And, you know, there is, there is something to, when, when you're describing an experience, just the way that we have to describe it has to be sequential. I can't say everything at the same time. I have to say a word and then the next word and then the next word. And so um, when when the, the very beginning phrase of this section, the veil was taken from our minds, right? In the analogy that I gave of, of pulling that giraffe out of that bag, this was that's not a sequential realization boom you see everything at once and you instantly know what it is and now so you have to talk about it. it so maybe yeah now you have to describe your process by which you realize this was giraffe well i saw this and i saw this well but i it wasn't really in that order i just that's the way i have to describe it because i can't say i saw everything at the same time right and so in for this vision to happen they say after this, after this, I don't know that it had to have happened that way. If, if you're having a, a, a divine manifestation of celestial beings, you know, time is not a consideration. Yeah. Know, sequentiality isn't a consideration. You know, it's funny. I say we shouldn't get hung up on these details, but, <laughs> but I have to say, you know, just knowing, especially knowing that Joseph Smith often edited the, the visions and the, the revelations after the fact, because it's like he had the experience. And so whatever words it was put into, he could change the words. And that doesn't sure. change the reality of the experience. Yeah. He may yeah. be tweaking his telling of it, but the experience is the experience. And it can't actually be told in words one way or the other. But so it, ju- it just leaves me curious with even, you know, knowing that he's, um, that he often does edit these revelations. Why is this out of order? <laughs> Let's just let it go, Ben. <laughs> we'll let it go. That's fine. We'll let it go. It is curious uh, to notice though. Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you thought would be important to, to point out in these sections here, Christopher? I think, you know, just to, just to reiterate, there's nothing new, Ben, nothing, nothing else to say, you know, nothing to add, but just to, in, in closing, you know, not that I'm, you, know, you close, but I'm going to say in closing myself that, again, the temple is, we can, anything can become an idol. So we can make an idol of the temple or we can make the temple the thing that points to who and what we are to become and who and what God is and, and our relationship with God. And so the temple is supposed to be, we're suggesting, the temple is supposed to be 
this model, building the temple is about building ourselves and sacrificing is about sacrificing of ourselves and doing it in our poverty is about our poverty of spirit. And so I think we can at least say all these things symbolically. And that's not to say that, that there isn't a temple and, and the temple, well, the temple always serves as a reminder because it is an icon and it is, and it's interesting because we don't have a lot of icons. All icons were meant to point to. I don't think, you know, I, I miss iconography as a convert. You know, I, the, those icons to me pointed to the divine that I didn't mm-hmm. worship icons. You know, I wasn't sure. A, and if I, and if I have been an idolater, I didn't need icons and I didn't usually, <laughs> I wasn't usually worshiping icons at church. It might be rather, you know, some worldly thing, you know, that could be the black box or, or whatever, <laughs> uh, whatever sports car I wanted to buy when I was a younger man, you know, whatever, you know, right. um, those are likely to be the idols. So, you know, the temple is an icon. It does serve to point to, and it, and it has to point to the ultimate reality that is the presence of God that we say we found there and we've suggested, and if we haven't stated ex- explicitly, I'd like to state it explicitly at this point, that our our own, we, we did say that the community of Christ itself, the ecclesia, the gathering of Christians that take upon them the, the name of Christ are the temple. Your body is a temple, says Paul, and he says that in a plural you. You, plural. Your body, plural, is the temple. That's us. And we also have been told that our homes can be a temple. We know that we can experience God in a manger. We know that we can experience God in the woods. We know that we can experience God in the temple, and we can experience God in our own homes. So we don't have to go. I like how you said it earlier, Ben. The temple is the place that teaches us in in its specialness how we don't need a special place. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's the paradox of the temple. It is. That, it is a paradox. You know, we kind of need it in order to tell us that we don't need it in that sense, right? Which makes me think again of, of, of those Old Testament prophets that show up, right? We needed to hear that. But what's really happening always in sacred time and in sacred places is that the presence of God is immediate. When we take off the sunglasses, when the veil is lifted from our minds, when we answer the knock, when we're still, we can know God, and we can know him anywhere. And there can be chaos all around us, and we can be in order, because that's another part of the temple, right? The, the, going to the temple is about not about learning about the creation out of chaos, but about entering back into order from chaos, taking ourselves out of the chaos of the world and putting ourselves back into that sacred space and time as um, the comparative religious scholar Mircea Eliada put it in Ilo Tempore, in that time, aborigine, from the beginning, back into the beginning, in the beginning, right? The opening words of, of of the Bible. And so... That's something that, that's important to do, and we and we we have the temple for that, and yet we can find that within us. The kingdom of God is within us. We are the temple. It's both and. Right. The other thing I would want to bring up, and, and again, it's not new just to, to reiterate, and and it's this, it's verse 15, it's this. One of these central, most beautiful messages, I believe, of the, of the restoration that that goes after this concept to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. 
this healing of the generations, this bringing together the family of God into one, turning our hearts to each other so that they can be one with, with Christ. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it's just beautiful that, that this section would kind of end with that, that, you know, after everything we've done, Joseph, this is the point. This is where we're going, right? We want to we bring people together under a testimony of Christ so that we can, we can heal the family of God um, and, and bring us into a relationship with him. So one of, the, one of the central messages of the restoration that I believe has, has a lot of depth and meaning to it that, that we can you know, discuss additionally at other times, especially when you get to, I think Joseph Smith goes off on it a lot in like section 128 when he gets into work for the dead and stuff. So we'll have a discussion about that. But um, if you have any comments or additional thoughts on these sections, then uh, please send us a message. Um, I believe you can reach out to us through social media, through email, um, lots of different ways that uh, that we're available. You can direct message uh, me. Um, of course, Christopher, you're not on Facebook anymore. Even me? No, you can actually. You know, I don't. I don't use Facebook, but I use Facebook Messenger. Oh, Ever you since use the they messenger. separated okay. the two, yeah, yeah, you can reach okay. out to me. So great. You know, you can still still message us in that way. And uh, it'd be great to hear any of your thoughts on this. Until next time, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks for listening.